0: Hello and welcome to the first edition of the brand new Be There podcast, brought to you by Dali Loudspeakers. We've made this podcast to accompany the first issue of Be There, Dali's new magazine about the creative forces behind great music. Dali are famous for making the finest loudspeakers, with incredibly detailed sound all carefully manufactured in Denmark, and it's all born from admiration of music. So Be There magazine celebrates the producers, the mixers and the studio geniuses who help your favourite musical legends and newcomers alike to turn a half-formed idea into a recording that can move millions. Streaming music and digital services often strip away producer and mixer credits from great recordings, so we should probably do a bit more to spotlight them, and that's what Be There is all about. My name's Andrew Harrison, I edited that first issue, and you can get a free copy by going to the Dali Facebook page, that's facebook.com slash dali.loudspeakers, and I've got some of the contributors with me here today. They're going to tell me what they learned while reporting for the magazine, what studio alchemy can add to great artists, and they're going to name their own studio heroes, the innovators whose name on the credits list alone is enough to make them go out and by record. And we're going to compile a few representative tracks on a title playlist so that you can listen in the highest resolution and no doubt through your lovely Dali Speakers as well. You can find that playlist on the Dali Speakers Facebook page. So let's meet our guests. Andrew Mail is a contributing editor at Mojo magazine. He writes for the Sunday Times and Sight and Sound. And in Be There magazine, he chooses five albums that revolutionised recording. Hello, Andrew. Thanks for coming in. Um, thanks for having me on. How are you doing? I'm good. Jolly good. You and I had to thrash out that list from quite a, a medium-sized long list, didn't we? It was well, hard work. Well, you we certainly did, yeah. And it's kind of, it's interesting because obviously
1: you're looking for albums that are historically important, but also albums that when you go back to them and listen to them, they're still doing the business in terms of like thinking, wow, that was that was pretty impressive what they got up to in that studio
0: yes did you feel guilty about leaving anything out once i got it
1: down to the final five i was quite ruthless and i said no these have all got their place there yeah and so i was i was absolutely fine with any exclusions and i think it's kind of i just kind of brushed them aside
0: and just thought no i'm going to just concentrate on these it's fine it's fine (laughs) we're going to go into those albums in a bit more detail later on but let's also say hello to james met who writes for the times and is a veteran of the word magazine in be there he meets liam watson owner operator of the game-changing low fidelity studio Torag in London's East End. Torag is where the White Stripes went to record their massive album Elephant. James, you recorded there yourself, I understand. Is this true?
2: I did. I'm so glad you brought that <laughs> up. I uh, Three times, in really? fact, I worked Your out. Your rock yeah. and roll past. What did you do? I recorded once at the first place he was at, backing Holly Golightly. Oh, yes. Who, in fact, appears on uh, She's Elephant. on Elephant, isn't she? Yes. She yes. is. Yes. Uh, and then once with one of my earliest and most inept combos. <laughs> called Name, Planet, Planet of the Apes. Planet of the Apes. <laughs> sing- was it James single- Med and the Planet of the Apes? Uh, no, I was the bassist. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, and not Bootsy Collins type bassist either. <laughs> and then uh, later on at the second one. I did a couple of tracks, yeah. And he was—he was really good, actually. I—it was—it was really interesting to see him at work and then interview him as a journalist.
0: Yeah. Did he remember you? Did he say, "Oh, you're that, oh yeah, you're that you know, we player. used to gig
2: together when he was ah. the bass player in the punk band Armitage Shanks." I mm. knew him fairly well.
0: I always thought that Armaged Shanks was a great name for something. I always thought <laughs> possibly some kind it of ragga MC. Yeah. <laughs> Shanks. It was also a
2: great name for a punk band from Snodlands in Kent.
0: We're going to go into the the details of the world of Liam Watson and Torag a little bit later after we've met our third guest. Pete Brown is Britain's preeminent beer writer, the author of Miracle Brew, Hops, barley, water, yeast and the nature of beer And also Shakespeare's local amongst others And he's a massive music fan And a confirmed follower of New Order Pete combines his two great passions By pairing the right beer with the right album On an acclaimed tasting show Which he takes around the literary and music festivals of Britain In a bid to hear his favourite album As he'd never heard it before On those very nice Dali speakers Pete came round to my house With a copy of Treasure by the Cocteau Twins And we listened to this and a few more classic albums Through a stunning set of Dali, Rubicon, Opticon and Callisto speakers Hello Pete, how are you doing? Hello,
3: I'm doing very well, thanks. Did that experience change the Cocktail Twins for you, in your mind? It did, it did. They became a more multifaceted band. And me. they had a lot of facets in the first place They did <laughs> Not short of facets And some of the facets of... I thought were big Became smaller And some oh. of the ones I didn't notice before Came to the fore uh, It was a very moving experience weirdly I it noticed this actually, you, were,
0: alive. you became a bit quivery and a bit more yeah. Because it's not just the sort of time travel aspect of music It's
3: the kind of It's going into the cupboard And discovering the things that were in there That you didn't know were there Absolutely And it's just like this album that you're familiar with I mean I've been playing that album for 30 years And just for it to kind of come alive again it, For it to be fresh Mm. Uh, and new, again, was, was incredibly moving. And I found that with the albums that other people took along as well. Yeah, we're going to talk about them a little bit later as, as well. Did you
0: find yourself regretting having listened to this lovely record on rubbish speakers? From
3: well, it's created a, a dilemma now, because I, I listen to music most when I'm working, and yeah. I've got a couple of half-decent desktop speakers through my laptop, but everything's condensed into MP3s, yeah. going through my laptop and out of these these little speakers, and that you've ruined it for me (laughs) well well now we've
0: unruined it for you pete we've unruined it for you we unruined it for a few other people as well i'm going to talk about that a little bit later on Now, what are the turning points in the recording of pop? Not the songwriting or the conception, but the actual physical creation and realisation of the sounds. We asked Andrew Mayle to come up with his five choices and we're going to go through them now. Now, Andrew, unsurprisingly, first up on the list. It's Sgt. Pepper's by The Beatles. It's almost silly to ask why. But why? Well, why? But well, at the same time, it it is still
1: frustratingly trendy for people to go, "Oh, don't rate the Beatles." Oh, the, <laughs> Be- the Beatles are overrated. I don't listen to the Beatles, and I think that it's kind of it's it's as an art pose, it's ridiculous. I yeah. think, and I think you can't ignore how integral and essential they were to. 20th century culture, not just music. I think the the thing that's important about um, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, because that's the album we're talking about, is the freeing up of the Beatles. The fact that you know three months earlier they'd played their final live concert, so they kind of came to Abbey Road Studios with a sense of freedom, Mm. and also they'd been freed in other ways, shall we say, by their use of LSD. Mm. And so their ears and their eyes had been open to a different way of looking and at and hearing the world. Sergeant Pepper had originally begun as an autobiographical album. So like the the tracks, Penny Lane and Strawberry Fields Forever were originally meant to be on it. And it was meant to be an album about their childhoods. And so they were drawing on that and they were drawing on music from the past, like, you know, Liverpool brass bands and kind of an, and a sense of you know, music from the 1920s. But at the same time, they were competitive beasts. So they were trying to sort of best the Beach Boys Pet Sounds. And so they just basically threw everything at it. I mean, yeah. you've got an album where there's a paper and comb on it, but there's also a 41-piece orchestra. You know, you've got tracks that are being slowed down, sped up, reversed, double-tracked. But, you know, nothing was off-limits. And yeah. also they were lucky to have a producer in George Martin who'd had a history of working on comedy records. So his established mode of practice was, somewhat, was someone coming kind of around going, George, let's try this,
0: see if it's funny, see if yeah. it works, see what it sounds like. There's actually quite a lot of the goons and The Beatles, isn't there? Absolutely. Major blood and- stomach and all no, that kind of very thing, funny mu- noises very much so yeah what trevor horn calls sonic events
1: yeah there's, there's lots of sonic yeah. events but also you've got to factor in that ruthlessness and you've also got to factor in that kind of eclectic nature of the beatles i mean there'll be people who say oh well such and such a band did it first or such and such an artist did it first but it's very like um Awesome Wells. you look at Sis and Kane, you can cite all the directors who did those things first, but Awesome Wells brought them all together in the perfect form. Sgt. Pepper was the, you know, the Awesome Wells of uh, of 60s music. I am actually, in a lot of ways, that person who doesn't listen to the Beatles that much because they've been around. You know, well, that I will. I'll hold my hand up and say, yes, that can turn you against the Beatles because you think, well, they're you know, I can't avoid them. You know, I they're on the radio. Why would I want to revisit that? But at the same time, I think that's one of the reasons why you kind of you are constantly surprised when you do because you have a very accepted, bland version of what they sound like. I played
0: A Day in the Life, the climactic track from this, through The Callistos um, and having previously heard it through like medium wave radio and cassettes and all this kind of thing. And to hear this thing with... Every element, the 41-piece orchestra, but also those strange time slips between the real world and the inside of John Lennon's head and yes. the inside of Paul McCartney's head was absolutely flat-out astonishing. and I don't think I'd ever heard it like that before. James, you're a Beatles man, aren't you? You're more of oh, an Abbey Road God, man.
2: Yeah. I, Abbey Road is mine, but I, for exactly the same reason, that it brings everything together. Yeah, And Abbey Road, I think I like it slightly more just because it's got more George. <laughs> but I do. I think that, the that, that reprise of uh, Sgt Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band going into A Day in the Life is probably the greatest moment in pop music. Andrew,
0: what would you choose as the, as the major production innovation on this album? Because we're good, we'll put the track on the title playlist.
1: I mean, I mean, I think the key track that I'd pull out would be what everyone else says. I think it has to be a, a Day in the Life. But I think kind of the thing that I find kind of remarkable about that album is... It's almost kind of like the way in which it has the mood of all four Beatles in it. And you, mm. you've got that kind of the romantic naïveté of of, um, of Paul. You've got the sardonic nature of, of John. And you've got that kind of world music eclecticism of of George. And you've got, you know, kind of an, – and, and you've got Ringo. No, <laughs> yeah. uh, what Ringo yeah, is, on. they're not the Beatles without Ringo, are <laughs> no, they? absolutely. Ringo. And Ringo sounds fantastic if you hear um, well, if you Sergeant Patterson's amazing To hear um, it properly,
0: there is there – is amazing Ringo-ness to be yes, heard of this because absolutely. Ringo's a simple do-do-do-do-do yeah. to hear that properly as it was originally made is a bit of a mind-blower so your, your second choice for uh, you know, records that revolutionised music was Marvin Gaye's What's Going On Yeah, what happens here that hadn't happened before
1: well I think it's kind of where there's a, a place that soul could have gone to and I think you look at kind of what Motown were expecting from their stars in the 70s. And, and basically, <laughs> Berry Gordy was looking at Marvin Gaye as like, he was going to go to Vegas. Yeah. That's where Soul was going to go to in the 70s. It was going to be high-end entertainment, you know, for sort of, going to be you know, ste- steak and chips diners <laughs> and everything. And basically what they weren't looking at, they were kind of in a way trying to avoid poverty, Vietnam, all the things that were impinging in on the sort of African-American consciousness. Mm-hmm. You know, most of them were saying, let's, let's not bother with that. Let's all go to Vegas. And Marvin Gaye's brother, who was in Vietnam, was sending him letters home. And so he was reading about what was going on in the world. And also he, again, we come back to that eclecticism. He was listening to James Taylor on Apple Records and he was listening to Michael, Young Michael Jackson in the Jackson 5 and so you have this mix of kind of a, a re-switched on consciousness plus someone trying to play around with what their vo- voice because I think he had a four octave range so he's playing around with what his voice can do and suddenly that voice becomes the voice of black america those mm-hmm. ranges those kind of high to low sort of ranges and he was lucky enough to go into a studio that had just been revamped. Motown Studio had just gone 16-track, and they had an engineer, Mike McLean, who wanted to play around with that and show that off. And so you have this kind of new soul consciousness, a new studio, and you have him freeing up a band, the Funk Brothers, who basically, previously in the 60s, was very much that Barry Gordy, play what I tell you to play. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly they ease out And so you have a very, on the one hand, what's going on is a very uptight record lyrically. You know, it's it's concerned about stuff. But on the other hand, it's a very laid back record musically. So it is like you kind of capture those two worlds of America at the time. You have that kind of, switched on drugs consciousness but you also have an america that's very aware that everything is
0: falling apart it's almost a single 36 minute piece of music yes. isn't it everything flows into everything else and you yeah. get the sense that this is a single consciousness yeah. exploring all the aspects of its of, of what's coming into yeah. its world and that idea of, of, of the album as a single work had become commonplace in rock, but wasn't really in the world of soul yet. And he made it happen.
1: There are, again, like what we were saying with the Beatles, there are artists that he draws from. Obviously, there's Isaac Hayes and there's Curtis Mayfield. I mean, you can't write them off. And, mm. you know, they were key influencers. But the fact that he brings it all as one complete piece because they tried it out on sides of records and they tried out the mood but i think it's kind of again he steals from the right people theft yeah. is very important with all these records in different ways and
0: what's the big production step forward mega moment for marvin Gaye's what's going on
1: i think with what's going on it's from the off because there's a the the house party sound that they have that sense that everyone's not caring a whit about anything and everyone's just kind of you know having a good time and the way that seamlessly slides into a question of kind of you know politics and social order and everything and it's it's so smooth the way it's done and i think that's what he wanted basically to say this is how easeful we can move into asking these questions. But also
0: the thing, what I found really electrifying about that is that it, what it's saying is this music is taking place among the people. Yeah. It's not up on a stage being sent to yeah. you. This is amongst us. This is yeah. what we are experiencing. And it's that, that is the setting. And I it. think
1: you look at how that influenced other artists and other sort of African-American artists, the idea that the music is for the people in the front room right there you yeah. know that it, it is not as you say it's not happening up on stage it's basically kind of it's for a bunch of people sitting around in their front room
0: so number 3 on your list this is the leap sideways because this is the dawn of electronic this is yes. Kraftwerk yeah. and trans-europe express and what we've seen so far is all these people have be, are using the studio as an instrument yes and Kraftwerk didn't just use the studio as an instrument they built the studio they built the instrument they were engineers as yes, much as they absolutely. were the
1: musicians yes absolutely kind of they were they were making instruments because the sounds weren't already there. I, mean, I like the idea that kind of it was uh, the idea com- came from this French music critic, uh, Paul Alessandrini, who who said that said that their uh, music was like an electronic blues. So they said, "Well, let's write songs about trains then," you know. And yeah, so that's what the blues is. Yeah, about. exactly. Yeah. So, you know, they kind of um you said let's write a concept album about the TEE railway service. And I think then obviously the sound of the railway feeds into the sound of craftwork yeah. and everything. It's important to remember that at the same time the craftwork were making this record, the key trend across kind of you know your, your, a lot of European and American music was authenticity mm. you know was kind of you know that was it was country rock was still sort of premiere you know and kind of there was a sense in which kind of that rock those rock I mean obviously kind of German music was trying to get away from the idea of the rock roots but the idea of kind of taking out the human almost totally and yeah. bringing in the machines and saying that this is a good
0: thing this is where electronic music is claimed forever as a European thing rock and role is an American thing, it's yeah. about sweat and it's about spontaneity and Kraftwerk are German, they're about precision, they're, it's clean and it's European and electronic music will be European forever afterwards Pete, you're a big Kraftwerk man aren't you?
3: What's fascinating about them, and I, I can vaguely remember some Kraftwerk records from being a kid it was that far away from being a novelty act You know, it could so easily have been written off as just kind of look at these guys and their wacky sounds and their wacky machines. And and, and
0: they're wearing suits and they're smiling to things you're not supposed to do in rock and roll. And
3: somehow it just kind of, for something so supposedly impersonal, Hmm. it's so soulful. Yeah, well, it's that's, really yeah, touching. Absolutely. It's really moving. Yeah. Uh, and also that it, it, kind of European romanticism that's absolutely. in there. Absolutely. But also, you
1: know, they were turning things that were kind of seen as kind of uh, a critique of a band, as in cold and repetitive, and turning them into positive things. You know, yes, things that you absolutely. say, oh, you know, oh, it's not working, guys. It sounds a bit too cold and repetitive. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yeah. Yes, I'm more cold and more repetitive. <laughs> yeah, turn up the AC.
0: I listened to this, I think it was on the Opticons, and the bit where Trans Europe Express turns into metal on metal. Yeah where they basically invent industrial music. They invent pipe-banging music. And to be able to hear every little scrape of every metal surface... And almost to be able to hear the pipe swinging through the air before it impacts with this sheet metal. To me, I I almost thought this was a timeless record, a record that sounds like it could have been made yesterday or tomorrow every bit as much as it was made in 1976, was it? But to be brought so close to it, and to feel like you're in amongst it. again, again, it felt like a totally new record to me. What's the production achievement on this one for the playlist?
1: Showroom Dummies. You know, because I think the way in which they take... All those things that we've said, and they take it to the dance floor. You know, they make it. And But also, the going back to what we were saying about the Beatles, somehow, the fact that it's imbued with a melancholy, it's not just that repetitiveness. It's not just the kind of a piece of sort of machine-tooled engineering. There is something human in there as well.
0: Right, your fourth choice, Andrew, was really pleasing to me because this is... This is me when I'm, in, when I'm a student. This is Three Feet High and Rising by De La Soul, which is a totally different way of making music and a totally different way of producing. Why is this a game changer?
1: Basically, it's the revenge of the nerds, isn't it? Yeah. I was around in 1989, and, and it's kind of... It's odd to think of hip-hop as having very rigid rules, but it did. It had a look, you know, black leather, Adidas gold chains, had an attitude, angry, boastful, funny as well. And the samples, you know, the, you, the samples were there... For the beats, you know, the samples were there as a structure and there were certain rules about where they came from. They didn't come from Johnny Cash, Liberace and Steely Dan, you know, which is where De La Soul were taking them from. And children's television programs. And children's television programs. These were uncool sources. And I think the other important thing is like what they were doing with those samples, that they were using them as punchlines. They were using them as punctuation. They were using them as... As gags, they weren't just using them as as hooks and breakbeats, you know, and so suddenly the sample has a different role and a different purpose. And hip hop, in a way, kind of throws the net open wide. It's basically you kind of, someone like Jay Diller wouldn't have existed without uh, an album like 3, 3 High and Rising because it's basically saying kind of the skill is to, to go beyond James Brown and go beyond kind of, you know, the, the breakbeat drumbeat and say, oh, we've actually taken our samples from here. Mm. And so, and in doing that also to kind of, there's, there's almost a cheapness to The Sound of Three Feet High and Rising. It's kind of all, a load of those records, the aesthetic of those records they choose are thrift store records. Yeah. You know, they are basically your granny's records or thrift store records. It's three for a dollar. They're not high-end, expensive, hard-to-find records. And that is the other thing as well. There's a dem- democracy about The Sound of Three Feet High and Rising that kind of it's almost saying anyone can do this. Yes. Pete
0: and James, you're of a similar similar vintage to me. Was this <laughs> was this an impact record for you? This was certainly was for me.
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, the first hip hop record I liked, yeah. and democracy. It was democracy for people like me too. Yeah, you, you're allowed in here, yes. and you yeah. don't have to adopt the entire lifestyle. You can just mm. like this record, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and every it was played to death. Oh, yeah. I was a student at the time yeah. too. Yeah,
3: this totally it broadened my horizons completely. Yeah, um, uh, it got me. It got me going beyond white boy indie for the first time, uh, and it's just such a happy record. It is. Yes. It's, 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 it's an optimistic it, record.
0: I remember I went to a record shop in Leeds, and I used to go record shopping a lot, sometimes daily. And I walked through the door, and the guy behind the counter held up a copy and said, "You need this. You need this record." <laughs> wow. And He made me buy it, and I didn't even know what it was. And I took it home, and it was yeah, total, total game changer. The strange thing about it, you know, there are records that sound that are built for beautiful speakers and beautiful setups. This isn't. This is. This is <laughs> built for a little cheap home system. So when you hear it through, uh, through through quality speakers, there's there's a definite mismatch because you start to hear the sticking plaster and the staples mm. and the jump. Well, hasn't that go? Hasn't it got crackle recorded? It's you got. Know, yeah, it's got yeah. It's got. Yeah. It's got crackle, which is either deliberately added or is just on the records they decided yeah. to sample. Yeah. You know, when you hear it on those kind of at that forensic level, you. What you what you hear is very different from the highly manicured super production jobs that we that we talked about here. But then that was the innovation, wasn't it?
1: Absolutely, and I mean, and they didn't survive that in- innovation. They did get it in the neck, and they did back down on on the second album. You know, mm. De La Soul is dead with the knocked over Daisy, like the dead plant pot. <laughs> you know, and kind of I think at the time they stood by that, but I think there's a part of them now that regrets that that they because and I think if you look at that story, you realize how genuinely innovative, innovative sonically this record was that almost kind of in a way it's sonically, it's quite an insult to a lot of the hip hop got that's gone before. Cause you know, that hip hop has weight and power and gravitas yeah. and this kind of, it, it strips all that away, even though kind of obviously there are songs about drug addiction in there, there are songs about kind of the homelessness, but they're all dressed up in a very sort of playful, yeah. eclectic, sort of fun style.
0: It's very possible we won't be able to put a track on this title playlist because... The thing is so. The, the sample clearances are so nightmarish. I don't think they ever cleared any of them. Yeah. And this record actually isn't really available anymore. It's, it's been hmm. impossible to reissue. Yeah. You can pick it up in a, yeah. a second hand shop for yeah. a Yeah, because so many copies yeah. sold. Uh. But in, if. Uh, hazarding a guess that we can get a track. Oh, now, well, but.
1: probably the track that I would choose you wouldn't be able to play because it's what, it is one of the most eclectic because I'd go with the magic number.
0: This saying
1: kind of. You don't have to be like us, you know, kind of you can do what you want, you know, that kind of, you know, digital underground would let you say do what you like. You know, there's a kind of freedom. It's kind of, you know, it's saying, you know, that Monty Python thing It's like, don't follow us. And also it's kind of it's so bold in the fact they've got, you know, Fred Astaire on there and a a bit of Eddie Murphy stand up and and Johnny Cash and Schoolhouse Rock, you know, the sort of boldness to it and the roughness to it. But at the same time, they're saying this is not an ethos. You know, this is not a way of life. You don't have to dress like us. You don't have to sound like us. We're just enjoying what we're doing. And I think that enjoyment still comes through, that kind of complete playfulness and also a lawlessness. Yeah. There, it, it
0: is a rule-breaking album, and it still sounds like it. And your fifth choice, your fifth and final choice for the five albums that revolutionized sound is Bang Up to the 21st Century. It's Discovery by Daft Punk. I daft. You know, I was listening to Six Music yesterday, and every other track
1: still had that distorted daft punk bass going mm. on it you know kind of until i'd gone back to this album i'd kind of forgotten how influential it was how there's yeah. certain daft punk sounds that you will just hear through everything i'd also forgotten kind of what a throwing away of the rule book it was when it came out you know and how snotty and kind of elitist a lot of daft punk fans were yeah you know about what quote-unquote French house
0: music sh- should sound like, you know. And Well, this is kind of... They bring in everything from their love of analogue electronic music to video game music to out and out disco to soul and they basically turn it into the rule book for pretty much all dance music That i mean they didn't invent these things but they were the ones who codified it yeah. and certainly took it to america yes. where it is regarded as one of the you know pretty much the originator yeah ironically yes you know house music invented in america yeah. sold to americans by french people yeah but i remember hearing this this is one of those strange situations where i actually first heard this through gigantically amazing speakers mm. And I remember being there. I said it mixed bag, the dance music magazine. I was there with the deputy editor and we'd been invited to hear this for the first time. And we just stood amazed in front of these monolithic speakers because we couldn't believe a dance record could have so much in it and yet be so simple and so yeah. amazingly joyful.
1: It's weird how writing about these five albums, there are so many points of crossover because like um, Sgt. Pepper, it's a record that is about going back to your childhood. You know, it's going back to the sounds of your childhood and trying to recreate them. But also, what's interesting about it, that it's got that kind of, it's got something of that inbuilt, melancholy in it there's that that sense in which they capture the sense that these things decay so the kind of the way that they kind of have that distorted sound in it you know but also at the same time there's a crossover with the de la soul album basically when this album came out it was kind of daft punk saying there are no rules anymore there is
0: nothing to follow interestingly as well pretty much all of the five records you've chosen that that revolutionized music are all mostly or entirely self produced by the artists. Yeah. None of these are we got a producer in to sort us out. Yeah. And they all use the studio as an instrument. Yes. It's the all about using the the entire thing to produce a single vision. And what would be the big turning point track on Discovery by Daft Punk?
1: I think just because it's funny and self-referential, I
0: think harder, better, faster, stronger.
1: Yes, it is really funny, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. It's a
0: joke about making their records.
1: Well, exactly. And also kind of, and I think in the piece I put it, it's Daft Punk's Four Laws of Robotics. It is. You know, and, and it's, it's, it's a rule book. For a band, it was for a, a duo saying there are no rules anymore. But the one one bit that really shines out when you get
0: to hear it unfiltered on, on these, which I would like to. I'd love to hear that. You, yeah. you come round, come yeah. round, <laughs> bring us, bring a, bring some French wine. And yeah. come round. And well, a, the great bit in harder, better, faster, stronger is yeah. just that that symbol bit. Yeah, where it's just a you know doing mixes and there's a, there's a, a line of four individual symbol bashes. Ting, 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 and to hear that isolated amongst all this noise, Is just like you can really hear why they did that because yes. the primal sound of, of house music absolutely so you can read more of this in the first issue of Dali's music magazine Be There which you can get from the Dali Facebook page Andrew thanks very much thank you Moving on, as I mentioned, we're going to be asking our guests for the heroes of studio recording from an aggregate between us in the room of about 160 years of listening to music, I think. Let's start with the legendary beer writer and lover of ambient music, Pete Brown. Pete, who's your studio hero and why?
3: It's Brian Eno. It's Um, Brian Eno. Yeah, he's the producer's producer, isn't he? (laughs) Uh, I almost felt it was a cliche, but I just couldn't choose anybody else. Uh, Mm. I love the way that he works with such a broad array of different bands. Yes. And in each case, he becomes like a... And a, an extra member of the band. He, he brings so much. It's an Eno uh,
0: collaboration across the nation. Exactly, course, <laughs> yes. exactly.
3: But I, I always go back to him as, as an artist and a producer. I think, I think there's no dividing line b- between the two. Uh, he, he lives in his studio virtually and he just plays. There was an interview with him last year or the year before and someone said, oh, what was it like we're working with Bowie? And he just erupted and said, if you want to know that, there's 40 years worth of documentation of me working with Bowie. Ask me about what I'm doing now. Mm. You know, he's not a nostalgist. He's still as curious as he ever was moving forward. And his last, not his last one, his previous to last album is, I think, his best one. Which is incredible. Which Uh, one's that? uh, The ship. The ship. Mm. Yeah, because it it combines all the different things he does. It's got ambient on it. It's got his voice on it. He realised as he's got older, his voice has completely changed its range. So he's playing around with that. The layering of of sound on it is is absolutely extraordinary. On on the title track, there's just this kind of whispered conversations behind all the main noise. Mm. He uses cut up vocal techniques from a new sort of computer programme. He uses disruption, all sorts of different stuff. It's so incredibly creative if brian Inner was a beer what would he be oh that's impossible so many different <laughs> things i mean it would uh it'd probably be a barrel aged imperial stout uh okay. purely in terms <laughs> of the complexity <laughs> right <laughs> i would have put him down i mean those ambient albums are very light ale though aren't they
1: in a way you know IPA, you know yeah. Or something yeah, yeah because there's something kind of clean and refreshing about them and outdoorsy and kind of, yeah you
3: know. yeah I, I tend to put uh with with, with sort of very sort of crisp sound with, with kind of sort of minimalist sound I always go for a really well made German Pilsner yeah. uh, which is what I always put with Kraftwerk actually oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. and it, you think oh well, well because they're German it's like well no it's because they're both of Germany I know they they, I they, they, is... they reflect the place and the character Pete what track would you choose for the title playlist oh, uh, I weirdly I am going to go with Fickle Sun 1 from the Ship album because it's just so extraordinary it's so new okay. um, and I just absolutely adore it let's hope it's on title then <laughs> <laughs>
0: You're listening to the Be There podcast, brought to you by Dali Loudspeakers in admiration of music. And one of the most fascinating features in the first issue of our print magazine is James Med's interview with Liam Watson, the London producer who flew in the face of high tech recording and took rock and roll back to basics at Rag Studios. James, who is Liam Watson, and why does he matter? What did he change?
2: He's a producer, and he's famous as uh, uh, for running a studio that recorded in. 60s style you know yeah effectively he's considered to be a luddite eight tracks everyone recording at the same time minimal overdubs that's as i learned not quite the truth mm-hmm. but he certainly started his uh, studio with with old equipment a lot of it from abbey road mm. i guess what he changed he introduced a strand of music i think there were other people doing it again in america recording like this but when he recorded Elephant with the White Stripes, he managed to produce a number one record in 2003 that was recorded on eight tracks and sounded at least as good as anything any other rock record produced at the time.
0: We talked about this just before the show. I re-listened to Elephants, which is a record I'm pretty familiar with, but not through the best speakers. I listened to them on the, I think, the Rubicons. And, you know, you hear people talk about, you can really hear the room. On this, you can absolutely hear every atom in the room. It's quite astonishing. I mean, Meg White is not the world's technically most gifted drummer. But while she's walloping a snare, you can not just hear the kind of sympathetic vibration in wires on the snare and stuff. You can hear the stands on the uh, on the cymbals. You can hear the shimmer of the cymbal in this sympathetic whack. And I got, you know, the sense of being in amongst the recording was absolutely supernatural. And it's yeah clearly that's what he's for isn't he that's what he's there to do to take you away from this kind of digital non-space where you can't quite place everything and make you have that that sort of sense
2: of presence yeah and while that's not the only thing i mean i think we'd all agree it's it is really great to get rock music back to that point Hmm. or to have that available again and the idea of having everyone in the room at the same time yeah and because rock and roll is about, about excitement if it's about anything, and having people interacting in that way, and it, and he brought that back, uh, and, and his idea is just that it should be done as simply as possible. Yeah, you know, he he kept saying this phrase, and that sounds good enough to me. That's as good as it sounds. Hmm. And most of te- his, his belief is that most of technology is entirely superfluous. Well, it does certainly give you it gives you more options, which is always a bad thing. Fewer options. Yeah, the just channel the, it down. The the arrays. Yes, he yeah. erases
0: stuff it's not just the white stripes the zootons wolf alice billy childish and even madness have recorded there people go there for the sense of a bit of magic don't they
2: i think so i know you you go in the room and it's really it's properly sort of looks like a studio it's got checkered floor and everything it's quite small it's not got that sort of horrible dusty carpet that you sometimes get in (laughs) studios and yeah obviously they see something And, and it's at the time everyone talked about it as if it was nostalgia and it's not just nostalgia. There's there's something essentially. It's actually honest. It is true. Do you
0: think it might be a, a part of it? Might be that musicians, when they feel they're in a, a a proper studio with heritage, it's different from being in just a very expensive studio that's brand new. It puts them in a different headspace.
2: Maybe. I mean, are you saying no? 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 I mean, because well, no, you could say that quite cynically, couldn't you? Well, I think I, it's a good thing because
0: yeah. people, you know, making records is a creative business yeah. it's a creative endeavor and you have to feel you have to feel creative you don't want to feel like you've gone to the bank or that you've you know you've gone to do the recycling you want to feel that like you're in a place that has got history that you're part of a lineage I don't know I mean I've never made yeah. a record so what do I know but it's the impression I get I think, no I think
1: that's true yeah I think <laughs> Liam Watson is someone who can put you in a different headspace I mean kind of it's interesting that he thinks differently about music I mean you I've had conversations with him about Dave Clark 5 and B-sides and Shadows B-sides being some of the best records ever made in the 60s. You know how he hears things is differently mm. and when you listen to them after he's
2: recommended them to you, you go,
1: this is incredible. Why have I never heard this before? <laughs> I had a long yeah.
2: conversation with him about Steel Ice Band. Yeah. Which, which, I think based on an article you wrote for Yeah, a, for like, Mojo. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's his his variety of music is very wide and he doesn't actually care what other people think about him. For example, he has installed digital equipment yes. in rag, which and is you would have thought is the worst thing he could possibly do for the brand. Yeah, uh, but he said it's good now. But he used to wear uh,
0: a white studio coat like the EMI yeah. producers of the pre Beatles. Well, he there. is a funny yeah, guy one. as well. Yeah. Say, mm. But he's actually <laughs> grown
2: his hair now as well. What's going on? He's well, he's 30. gone. He's gone. Sort of, I think sort of sixty-seven. Yeah. Oh, so he's aging in real time. Yeah, <laughs> from aging, sixty-three to sixty-seven, I think now. So in about seven years' time, we can. He's going to be punk. I think he's, he probably did that years and years yeah. ago. I don't know, before I, I never met him. Yeah. There's a
0: lovely story in your piece that were, um I did not know where the title Ball and Biscuit, the White Stripe song Ball and Biscuit, came from. I just
2: thought it was a strange collision of words. But it's actually a type of microphone. Yeah, I think Jack White did his automatic writing thing
1: yeah well i was um i went into the studio when the album was being made and did a mojo piece for it and jack white had never heard of the term ball and biscuit either until liam introduced him to this microphone and he heard it and he just thought well that sounds filthy yeah yeah you know that sounds like it could be kind of you know a nice sort of euphemism for the you know the beast with two backs or something Uh you know so we kind of i'm using that family podcast family (laughs) podcast
2: yeah what actually is a ball and biscuit microphone I don't know because he sold it. (laughs) I've never seen it because it it then became £15,000. Oh, right. There's a
0: picture of it it in the print magazine and it seems to be this large metal sphere. Oh, it is? That's uh, the ball. That's the ball with this large metal disc in front of it. The biscuit. And it it doesn't look like something you'd sing into. It looks like something that you might club a medieval invader to death with as he climbs the walls of your castle. But clearly it inspired Jack White to sing.
1: Mm. Yeah.
0: So that's Torek Studios by uh, and Liam Watson by James Med, which you can read in the print edition of Be There magazine. Now, let's have another studio hero, Andrew Mayle, contributing to Mojo magazine. Who's your studio hero and why? I've gone with Tom Wilson um, because he is
1: the man responsible for Bob Dylan's wild mercury sound. He <laughs> probably invented folk rock. He got the Velvet Underground signed to Verve. And he also um, sort of introduced Frank Zappa and, uh, to the world for his sins. Um, but <laughs> a lot of people still don't know the name. And if they do know the name, they don't know. I mean, he was a six foot four African-American Republican, Harvard graduate from Waco, Texas. I mean, sort of, the, you know, kind of if you have a cliched idea of. A '60s American producer. He didn't fit it, you know, and kind of he began in the world of jazz, you know, kind of so kind of if you know your jazz, he's kind of instrumental in. he, He recorded the very first album by Sun Ra futuristic sound they previously to that they'd just done singles but basically kind of he got a job at columbia and he produced the times they are Change in and another side of bob dylan but crucially he also produced bringing it back home and the thing about him is we were talking about producers the old idea of a producer as a vibes man who just got people comfortable with trying out different ideas in the room they weren't the engineer pushing the buttons but Tom Wilson said to Dylan, he said, you know, what about bringing in a couple of electric guitars on this uh, bassist pal of mine? He um, got uh, Bill Lee, Spike Lee's um, father, into play with Dylan and, and a drummer. And it's so that's how Dylan kind of went electric. And Dylan was asked about this. He said, you know, someone said, did did Tom Wilson turn you electric? And he said, well, he kind of did to a certain extent. He had a sound in his mind that he wanted to try out in the studio. And I think with another producer, we know, you know, Dylan would have said, No, thanks. But I think because Tom Wilson was so kind of made the studio such a comfortable place, he went along with it. And he kind of – he was the guy who brought in his pal Al Cooper to play on Like a Rolling Stone. So the organ that you hear that goes all the way through Like Mm -hmm. a Rolling Stone that kind of makes it the track that it is, that was Tom Wilson's idea. And he – remixed the sounds of silence so he got in the bass and the guitar and the drums and 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 sort of so created that sort of folk rock sound so i think the thing about him is is like you listen to a lot of those records now you listen to those dylan records or those velvet underground records you're not listening to them for works of kind of beautiful sonic clarity but what you're hearing is that rarest of things a producer able to capture a moment where music changes And he does it just by making the studio the right place. It was kind of what we're saying about Eno. The studio becomes the right place to try out new ideas. And I think when you listen to a lot of his records as well, they still sound like you're hearing them for the first time. And they capture an energy and a power that so many of those 60s records don't capture. Uh, what's the
0: emblematic track that, that encapsulates what he's about for you?
1: Well, that's why I chose it. It's the Animals and in it's Inside Looking Out. It is not the cleanest sounding record of the 60s, <laughs> but it is one of the most exciting sounding records of the 60s. And there's a kind of almost that sense that of Eric Burden is a singer who has a kind of fuggish power to him. And it's one of the records that really captures that. There's almost a kind of a rule breaking roughness to it I think you can listen to it now and say that there's punk rock you know kind of right early on there's a Newcastle group of of kind of working class lads and sort of eight years before punk rock comes along Tom Wilson kind of captures it with the animals in, uh,
0: in a Columbia recording studio we'll drop that onto the playlist then Now, one of the fringe benefits of a project like this is you get to experience some of the most stunning speakers you'll ever hear. We set up three sets of Dali speakers in my little London flat. Rubicon 2, from Dali's high-end accurate range. Opticon 2, which brings that super accurate sound to a wider audience, and it gets you about 70% of the sound at about 40% of the outlay. And the brand new wireless Callisto 2C active speakers, which operate from a digital sound hub, and they let you send everything from a CD or vinyl to streaming services out as a high-res signal in beautiful high-res audio. The idea was we would listen to our favourite albums as we'd never heard them before. Would we hear things we didn't know? Would we discover new stuff? In the magazine, you can read about how Kate Mossman from The New Statesman brought The Miracle by Queen, which is quite a listen, I can tell you. The author, <laughs> Travis Elbera, brought round Laughingstock by Talk Talk. And Pete Brown, our guest today, brought Treasure by the Cocteau Tins, as we talked about a little bit earlier. This was quite the experience, wasn't it?
3: It really was. It was, it was very surprising. Yeah. Um, I mean, that album is uh, a defining album of the 80s for me, and I'm sure a lot of other people. And the Cocteau Twins, you know, music writers at the time, it was all these cliches about sonic cathedrals of sound yes. and all that kind it's of Yes, ethereal, yes. And, uh, and listen to, on the speakers, what was, I guess in some ways, a little bit disappointing, but not really, was that this big wall of sound wasn't as big as you expected. Yes. Uh, I kind of realised that this that it was a guitar with an effects pedal. Mm. And and that's what was happening But with that kind of pushed back a bit And not being as impressive as I'd expected Everything else came out So there's actually a lot of acoustic guitar on there Which I hadn't really I, I kind of knew it was there But I'd not really paid attention to it before and and the Liz Fraser's voice came through much more strongly there was a, a, a breathiness to it and mm. an range to it I mean she's always had an extraordinary voice but we've got even more of that and then just this simple idiotic stupid drum machine that's very basic <laughs> just sounds incredibly powerful yeah. uh, so it was like the the mix of elements in the album was it was really altered I was me. really surprised that that drum machine in particular I'm thinking they never made a hip-hop
0: record this sounds like a hip-hop record what's going on here do you think that somewhere the copso twins have spent the past 30 years going we never meant to make a wall of sound we wanted to have very detailed stuff that you can hear very clearly but everybody everybody listened
3: to it through rubbish speakers at home and they thought it was a wall of sound said, I, th- I think probably so i mean you know it, it, it's a, it was a classic 80s student album yeah and we were listening to it yeah you know, for me personally i had a a very cheap hi-fi system at home, and then a ghetto blaster at university. Mm-hmm. So I was putting everything onto C90 tapes, recorded from vinyl onto tape, and taking my tapes up to uni with me, yeah. and playing it through this tinny little system. And you, you thought it was a wall of sound because if you turned it up, it yeah. it had some volume, you know, it had, it had some presence and some mm. some. Some materiality to it. And yeah, it's, it's kind of like the speakers just completely changed that experience. Yeah.
0: And I think it's fair to say that neither you nor I are Queen fans, are we? We're no. not really sold on Queen. Not really. But that album, The Miracle, I mean, I can't. I, I'll never love it. I don't love it. But I was, I was impressed anew by the ridiculous things they were doing because it's not just a big Brian May guitar record. There's kind of like electro bass lines yeah. and this insane Wagnerian orchestral stuff on the go. Which, when you've heard it through a medium wave radio, you know, when you've heard yes. "I Want It All" through a medium wave radio only, you don't
3: detect the absolute wedding cake
0: insanity
3: of. What Freddie Mercury wanted to do. Exactly. I mean, my experience of that on those speakers was uh, you're starting to kind of reevaluate Queen, you start to hear a lot more than you thought was there, mm. and then Brian May comes in with another one. Guitar, well, sorry, <laughs> with, with his one guitar solo uh, <laughs> again, you know, and it's like, yeah, I know that beat, get off, you know. and it, it, All the other stuff that you mentioned was really starting to uh, yeah. to come out, the, the inventiveness of it, and, and, you know, a band working together, you really got that sense of four creative well, people really Kate, kind of doing yeah, it together.
0: Kate was explaining this, they, they sort of retreated into their own world hadn't mm. they because they'd, they'd had the shock of freddie mercury's illness and uh, various other things that made them retreat into their bubble and tried to make a live queen album and i'm not sure it sounds like a live record but it's it does sound like an enormous record physically enormous i'll never love it but it, it, it was admirable in a way i'd not expected yeah, yeah. my one obviously pet shop boys introspective <laughs> this was i was blown away i mean i know this, this is a record i know inside out. As a student, I used to play it literally every day because it was the only record we had in the Student Union newspaper office. But to hear it through these, the the, the Callistos where, left to my own devices, the opening track, you've got a full-on orchestra and an opera singer and a battery of drum machines and one of the biggest, thickest bass lines of that era. And bass lines were pretty big and thick in the 80s. And I've been used to hearing this as this kind of assault. And then to hear it all beautifully placed where... Everything is there. Everything is clearly visible. Placed in a sound field, I can pick out all the intonation of Sally Bradshaw and realise for the first time in 30 years that I thought she was just going la, 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 la. What she's actually singing is house, house. She's like a house record where a sample would go house, 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 house. They've brought in an opera singer to sing the word house. <laughs> wow. So, the, again, the ludicrousness of it really really came through. And just the fact that this is an album inspired by the club music of, you know, as, as house and acid are turning into techno and so forth they decided that they would make an album where every track was the 12-inch version, every track was the big version. And what you're used to in that world is that the bass swamps everything, and it's actually about that physical punch. But to hear it in all of its components...
3: Was like something else entirely. I've never seen a grown man so gleefully and innocently happy. <laughs> I as, was as when that, about. To, to I've seen him in his madness concert. <laughs> well, yeah, James and Andrew, what, what
0: albums would you like to hear as uh, as nature intended?
2: Well, I do remember in the early eighties, I must have known someone very rich because they had a really good <laughs> and then you became system a journalist. in their house. <laughs> 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 but they, but but my album Abbey Road is the one yeah. I chose uh, as as the greatest album. I mean. Uh, and I remember hearing that being played on an incredibly good system, and it is astonishing. Mm. And I think it was eight, eight tracks. Yeah, to bring it back to Liam Watson again, but I do remember thinking that that was an astonishing <clears throat> feeling. Yeah. It's a t- it's a different emotion almost mm. from hearing it on the sort of flat mono cassette player that I was used to.
1: Andrew, how about you? What record would you like to hear? Is, I think it would be Gene Clark's No Other, because I've kind of gone through a journey with that album, and listening mm. to it very similar to what we were saying about first heard it on cassette. Then got a kind of I think it was a kind of slightly dubious kind of CD, not not properly licensed. Then I then I got it uh, a vinyl copy, and each time I've reheard it, I've heard new layers to it. I mean, when I first heard it, I thought it was just a country rock album, and then I kind of listened to it and just hear these kind of you know, the strings and this kind of euphoric quality, and it went from being an album that i liked to an album that just felt that overwhelmed me with with its emotions and one word that seems to capture the emotions of the singer what the world that they're going through so at first you just think oh this is a guy singing some nice songs and then it's just you're almost reduced to tears listening to it when you Mm -hmm. when you're hearing it kind of you know through good speakers on a you know uh, uh, original pressing of the vi- vinyl so i'd love to hear it through you know, i'd love to hear it again and see what m- other layers
0: have yeah. revealed you, you want know. to hear it
2: again for the first time yeah mm.
0: we're going to finish with one more studio hero james med who's your hero of the studio and why
2: i chose prince uh, mm-hmm. because i i think because in sort of 1985 i remember hearing when doves cry and that was probably the first time i think i thought I can see how he put that together, because it's really quite obvious. You can tell, even if you don't know it's just him, you can hear the layers coming in and out. When I did find out that it was just him, then I think I started to listen to records in terms of production, probably for the first time. It's such a weird record, particularly when you find out it was number one in America for five years. I mean, it's a great pop tune, but he messed it up. It's like he deliberately... Uh, sabotaged himself he took the bass line off he had grunting and moaning all over it but it was the other bits of it were so amazing this the the sort of the drum sound the lin drums really clunky uh and the the synth sounds and then the screaming guitar so all the great bits of prince yeah just him and And i've loved all the bits he's done like sign of the times which i only recently realized most of it was just him
0: yeah. Well, I remember when Sign of the Times Camp being really shocked because everything previously had been so big.
2: Yeah. And then mm. this is just stripped back and no reverb or echo of any kind. Yeah. It's
0: like he's, he's in a very small room with you. Yeah. Really, like, took me back.
2: Also, just the sounds he gets mm. are astonishing. And I think he uses a lot of presets, so I... I don't, I'm not sure he sort of spends hours twiddling knobs. I think he just gets in there, slams it down. Yeah,
1: that thing you said about When Doves Cry, I think that's one, one of the tests of a great record, is you listen to it and it's just like... Oh, there's this bit, this bit coming next. Oh, and then there's this bit. And it's that like is so, when Doves Cry is incredible because I just, I look forward to each individual little bit. We're not quite on the same level, the inside looking out by the animals is like that. Oh, that, that wobbly bass is coming up in a minute. You know, and I think it is it is a sign of a great record where you're not listening to it as the whole piece, but you're, you're also looking forward to yeah, the individual in and out little like bits. You. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if when I just, doves cry. I think might be the perfect example of that. Yeah. It's wonderful. I
0: wonder if that's the, the the genius move of a great producer to just go, "Need some more bits? Let's yeah.
1: yes. have some more bits.
2: Yeah. Got <laughs> more bits. Trevor Horn. I mean, yeah. uh, and I say this with yeah. huge admiration, might well be someone who does that. Doesn't yeah. he? Yeah. He's king of the bits. Yeah. Got a lot of bits. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, I think that's our
0: show. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it, as listeners. Thanks to all of our guests, all of whom are in the first issue of Be There magazine. Andrew Mail, we can read you in Mojo and Sight and Sound. Uh, yes. what, what's up next? What have you got? think I'm allowed to
1: say because it'll mm-hmm. be out soon? I've got an interview with um, Kamasai Washington in the next Mojo, yep. which uh, absolutely lovely man. So that was good. It's good reading him. Yeah, fantastic. And uh, Ian McEwen in the Radio
0: Times. as well. Oh right, yeah, very nice. James, man, thanks for coming in. Who are you most looking forward to going to see live in the near future?
2: In the near future, I'm going to see Nick Cave. Ah, always possibly the best live band in the world. Mm. I think that's pretty indisputable.
0: It's a you could make a pretty strong case. (laughs) Yes, I uh, I wouldn't want to argue against it too much. Yeah, Victoria Park.
2: Should be good Fantastic mm.
0: And Pete Brown Miracle Brew is out now So I asked you about What's the right beer For Brian know What's the right beer To accompany Treasure By the Cocteau Twins Through those nice Callisto speakers
3: uh, Oh a Saison A Belgian Saison A Belgian Saison Yeah mm? Yeah spicy I think they had a track Called Belgian Saison I think <laughs> exactly that <actually>. yeah. <laughs> With
0: Elizabeth Fraser Warbling about the uh, Beautiful malton uh, uh, about, the, about the wild yeasts. Yes the, uh, <laughs> And they, and the fruity elements. Fantastic. Well, if you've enjoyed this show and our fruity elements, don't forget, you can read more in your copy of Be There magazine. Get yours for free by going to facebook.com slash loudspeakers. And don't forget to follow Darley on Twitter at darleyspeakersuk UK and at Dali Speakers. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, why not share it with a like-minded friend? Thanks for listening. and We hope to see you again soon. Be
2: There from Darley Loudspeakers was presented by Andrew Harrison and the studio producer was me, Jack Claremont. Be There is a Podmasters production.